I'm going to continue talking about the differences between Western psychology and Buddhist psychology for this talk. Mostly because uh, a lot of the confusion, not for everybody, but most people in the West have been exposed to psychological ideas. And the psychology ideas are floating around. They're in the, they're in the magazines you read while you're waiting in the doctor's office. They're re, or in the dentist's office. They're, they're in the television programs you watch. Um, they're uh, described in, as, as therapies and so forth out there in, in the general culture and popular culture. And they're also integrated in even using some of the Buddhist techniques like mindfulness. So mindfulness becomes a, a, a word adopted by psychologists and integrated into uh, schools and uh, into therapy, into hospitals. So we would say that actually a form of Western psychology or psychotherapy in the modern times is, uh, is mindfulness practice. There's a, a doctor named uh, John Kabat-Zinn in the West, uh, the, in the U.S. that uh, himself was a meditator and thought that it was very helpful. And he, he began to use it, mindfulness practice, in uh, his therapy. And so this spread in all kinds of areas. Uh, but when we talk about mindfulness, we have to understand that there are different definitions of this. The one in Buddhist psychology or Buddhism is it has a little uh, word in front of it, sama. Sama sati. Sati is the word that is translated as mindfulness, but it is sama sati. S a m m a, and that means that it it is functioning in a whole context, and the context is the eightfold path. The eightfold path might be called the holistic aspect of Buddhism. This is another uh, coined term you have uh, in psychology, holistic therapies. Holistic just means that it treats the person as larger than just one dimension or one aspect. If you have some certain kind of qualities affecting you, you may need to look outside of a, a narrow area into broader area of your life. So if somebody comes to the doctor and complains of uh, pains in their stomach and so forth, they might ask, how's your family life? <laughs> they, and it may turn out that the family is the one that gives them the pain in the stomach. So this is more holistic and then, or maybe the whole society that and in, of course, this is the it is the case that the person, the individual, is is also very profoundly affected by the immersion in a in a society, a whole 
ocean of influences all around them. So Buddhism is holistic in the sense that it, the Eightfold Path describes an internal attitude that's called right view, uh, a view of things, and I'll come back to that. But it also prescribes how one should speak, how one should act. And then it also gives exercises that one should do to exercise the mind, the higher education part of the path. The last three factors of the path are right effort. And by the so the, this word right that I'm using is translated as sama. Sama vayamo. Right effort, sama sati, right mindfulness, and sama samadhi, right absorption. So this this is a, a holistic prescription which involves every aspect of your life. The fifth pa- factor of the Eightfold Path is called right livelihood. And so certain types of livelihood are considered to be damaging or productive of ill health for people. It's not all that narrow. A number of different livelihoods are okay. But livelihood in Buddhism has a strong ethical aspect to it, dimension to it. This is, of course, not foreign to psychologies. Freud says there's two, you know, the the two most important things for people is work and love. So that's what is on the minds of of people functioning in uh, in society. The two huge, overwhelming aspects of their lives are work. What do you do for your work? What is your work? You're spending so much time at your work, and then the other part of your time is with is the love element. But that that isn't just romantic love. That's your your relationships with your family, your family relationships, love and work. So most psychologists and psychiatrists are dealing with how are your relationships with your friends and family and and perhaps your romantic life as well. Psychology is very interested in uh, the sexual life and the romantic life. And, and then, of course, your work as well. Buddhism has right livelihood, but it's only one aspect of, of a very large aspect of life. And these things are all integrated into Buddhism, are not foreign to it. But what's more or less left out of ordinary, of Western psychology is the development of the higher mind. The higher mind is uh, called the Adi Chitta. And... Um, and that is the three last factors of the path. We don't think, uh, the, the, the Buddha does not think that being a well-adjusted, even kindly person is enough. There are higher possibilities to the human. It may not be possible to everybody, and this is more or less... Uh, one of the distinctive features also of the Dhamma or Buddhism 
is that incorporated into the psychology is a high supernormal psychology, which will not be, is very explicitly said, not to be encountered by ordinary people without special training, without special exposure to certain ideas and practices. So that's not part of normative psychology. Normative psychology recognizes that there are good and uh, fulfilling types of human experience. But they're afraid primarily to speak too much about extraordinary levels of human uh, capacity. In the last few years or last few decades, there's been some school of psychology focusing on especially high states of happiness or high states of development. But this is fairly recent. And, and often when you read that kind of psychology, they will even refer specifically to such uh, practices as, as meditation, Buddhist meditation even, or even whole lifestyles like how monks live. So this is allowed now in the, in the modern psychology to, to even talk about these things. This is the kind of psychology that you're likely to come across. One part of it is a confusion when you go to meditate. How much do you invest in your past, in your personal history, your relationship to your parents and the type of experiences you had as a child growing up? How much of that? Uh, personal history are you do you believe is a major influencing factor on who you are now that very notion is uh, be is a western psychological notion when you come to the to the dhamma when you come to buddhism and you read the suttas the earliest suttas you will have very little um exposure to any investigation of your personal life history or the events of your early life as determining your present psychological experience. They talk about incidents in people's lives and they talk about trauma as well. So we have some examples where the type of trauma that humans experience is very clearly articulated in the first noble truth. Right? There is suffering. And then there's a list of all the ways that humans suffer. And one of them is by loss. Loss through people around them dying, for instance. So if a mother loses a child, this is cause of suffering. If a child loses their parents, this is a cause of suffering. If a wife loses her husband, a husband loses his wife or friends or close relatives. And then, of course, in wars and so forth, you, you can lose all your extended families. This, this happens, of course, uh, in the large wars and in, in tribal wars, even your, your entire. Sometimes there's everybody in, a, in an extended family of four or five hundred people of cousins and uncles and grandfathers and grandmothers and on and on can be wiped out 
you can lose that whole field of people. So these are kinds of sufferings that people experienced in the time of the Buddha as well as to this day. And uh, they're obviously traumatic. Uh, there's a few stories of people going mad, you know. So a mother, a mother loses her both of her children on the same day. Young children. There's one of them is swept away in a river, and another one is a baby is picked up by actually by a large bird and taken away. And uh, at the same time, her parents die, and uh, her house burns down. And th- this sounds incredible, but actually it happens. You, you, you see news accounts of people who lose their entire family in a in a fire. They're they're away. They come back. Everybody in the family is dead. Children husbands, relatives, and the house, and everything they own is gone. And you think, wow, <laughs> that's an incredible... How do you deal with something like that? This is traumatizing, and it was traumatizing, and it is traumatizing. But how do you... What's the... How do you deal with that in psychology? With psychology, how do you deal with these things? Psychology, basically, Western psychology is, uh, much of it is established around uh, a sort of scientific view of things. So one of the things that is usually out of bounds for psychology is any discussion of uh, what happens when you die. They might be interested in near-death experiences or the consciousness of that time, but they, they cannot speak about what is beyond death. Now, that's what distinguishes scientific psychology and scientific psychiatry as well from um, a religious point of view, specifically a Buddhist point of view, where part of the view, the very fundamental view, is a commitment to the possibility of persistence of some sort after death. And that, that is psychology. That's one of the most profound aspects of the human mind. If you have a notion of a future, and a future which is, is determined by the contents of your thought, speech, and action, and in, in other words, a meaningful and coherent future, and one which persists even beyond the, the passing away of, of yourself or other beings, that lights up a lot of circuits in your mind, in your brain. Now I'm using modern psychological terms, your brain. You will not find a reference in all of Buddhist teachings to your brain. You will find sophisticated references to your mind, none to your brain. So when I, when I refer to your brain, that's a feature of modern psychology, the idea that certain element, you know, certain types of behavior and structures are located within the brain itself, the material elements of the brain. So you you have to be at least aware that this is the um, this is the language and attitude of modernity. Why why is it the brain? Because the brain is something you can see and is material. And uh, this is the nature of psychology which wants to be approved of by other sciences. 
uh, the science of physics is sort of the ultimate science because it is exclusively about matter. And the other sciences, chemistry and biology, are establishable uh, to do with the functions of matter and the, the laws of matter. They're less precise and measurable in physics. But then you have psychology, which is also a science. Some, But, uh, you know, there's many physicists that do not regard psychology as a science. They re- set it aside as too soft, especially such things as sociology, the study of large groups of people, how they think and behave and how they influence each other. They would just say, what are you talking about? It's not scientific. It's, it's just too soft, too vague, not precise enough to qualify as a science. Psychologists would like to be scientists. Sociologists would like to be scientists. Isn't that interesting? That has another aspect to it, and that's called economics. A lot of psychological theories and practices and psychotherapies uh, are have an economic element to them. Psychologists have to make a living. They have to pay for expensive educations. They have a status in society. They have a status amongst their peers, the other psychologists. They have a they have to establish credibility in the scientific world. So that's why they they don't do things like the horoscope. The horoscope might be an early form of uh, psychology. It's a pseudoscience, so it, it emulates science, but is not a science. And psychology has a, a certain kind of fear <laughs> or horror <laughs> of being a, considered a, equivalent to the horoscope. <laughs> Notice that you, you know you. Some people rely on the horoscope in the paper uh, for a diagnosis, uh, you know, help in understanding themselves. So they read the the 12 possibilities as presented today of your horoscope. And and as you read, you, you think, yes, sometimes they describe you. You know, you are a certain amount. There's a level of impulsivity to you. You are prone to romantic um, gestures. However, there is this a grounding element which also balances that. And you think, right, that is me. Isn't that amazing? Then you realize that's the wrong month. Um, the Actually, you're an Aries. You're not. <laughs> and then, then you read that one and you think, well, maybe I am that. You know? so the problem of, of actually pinning yourself down and actually saying, who are you? That's one of the reasons psychology is different than physics. It's not a mathematic. It doesn't come down to mathematical formulas. As soon as we get into something as complex as a human, with all the aspects of a human, it starts to get very fuzzy and cannot really be approached mathematically. Although there are some types of Western psychology that are are even mathematical. You have statistics in measuring things. You have IQ tests where you measure and measure people's IQ so forth. This is very interesting. It's an amazing thing that they can some get some uh, mathematical results, but there are limits to this and certain amount of questions to it as well. What 
Buddhism has over certainly modern psychology is it's very old and has worked and sustained cultures for not just centuries, but millennia. And what we have is also some profound, basically systematic psychological studies of what, what happens when you take a person, either a man or a woman, and you can take them even in childhood from the age of, say, 10, and you separate them from society. And you put them in a, in a highly structured experimental community only surrounded by wise, mature, and well-behaved people who abstain from all forms of violence and also acquisitive things and also even sexual behavior. They abstain from all these things. It's a very unusual thing to begin with. It seems uh, not natural, which indeed it is not. Now that experiment has been going on for 2,500 years, that's the Sangha, both the monks' Sangha and the nuns' Sangha. And what we find out, quite probably to the certain amount of skepticism to the, to the psychological, modern psychological community, is that humans can actually flourish in that. And not only can they flourish, they, they flourish supernormally. They report, their interior reports their anecdotal reports of their own states of mind are not really in line with normal types of psychological structures of humans. Now, what, what, does the, what does the psychologist do with this since they're not super normal? They're normal. And they're, when they do their studies and so forth, they're, they're studying other normal or abnormal or subnormal people. They don't know really what to do with this. There was a psychiatrist who came to Ajahn Chah's monastery many years ago, back in the late 60s or early 70s. And he was very interested in monks. He was a Western psychiatrist. And he asked them to fill out some forms and some studies and... uh, uh, he one of the questions on there was, "Are you satisfied with your sex life?" And um, Ajahn Sumedho filled out the form, and uh, he said he filled it out. He said yes, and then the do- <laughs> psychiatrist said, "How can you be satisfied with your sex life? You don't have one." <laughs> he said, "That's what I'm satisfied with it. I'm satisfied not to have a sex life." <laughs> now this this. Absolutely astonished this psychiatrist to the extent that he did ordain for a while himself. <laughs> Modern Western psychiatry and psychology, uh, at least up till recently, has been also, whether they're conscious of this or not, they have suffered from the same ailment as Christianity. It's called superiority complex. Christianity has presumed itself, the Western civilization has presumed that it's Christianity that that made it so wealthy and powerful. 
and they it gave an indication that Christianity was superior, and they had they were allowed to say this kind of thing because Christianity is a missionary religion, just like Islam is a missionary religion. It's a determined effort to convert the world to a superior point of view. Uh, whether they understand it or not, there's psychologists and psychiatrists uh, with the theories that they develop in the West through science also uh, have a belief that they have very powerful tools which have proven successful in the West and that that's superior to the pagan or primitive ideas that people outside of the modern, western, technical, scientific community have. Now, but whether they understand it or not, I mean, I, how do I understand this? It's because I have more or less abandoned Western psych, uh, the West, having, but already having been a member, born, raised, educated, immersed in all of the best ideas of the West and Western culture, of religion, of philosophy, of psychology, of science, all its music, etc., and at some point, having found it lacking, I explored outside of it, and I, I and, and entered and immersed completely for the second half of my life, actually longer period of time, as a as a practicing, deeply practicing Buddhist, than I spent as a a, a person, a citizen, immersed in the Western. Uh, ocean of views. And so I, I can compare, I can see it as, I, as I've left it, I can see that uh, what I was emerging from and, and my views, my, in, my instinctive or unconscious views about things. And so this is, this is one of the ailments of, of Western psychology is that they also are somewhat technically have an attitude which is suspicious of Buddhist psychology. Now, this is changing in recent times, and we have, and of course, I have here a number of psychiatrists and psychologists and even anthropologists and so forth that come and practice in, in, in an immersive way in a very serious commitment and find get in the, that it, it assists them greatly in their practices, in their Western the application of their psychology to the West. So ultimately, we're emerging from a time when Western psychology is has a very different background in history to Buddhism, and was had a certain dismissive and uh, different approach. And so, when you practice, you you need to reflect on whether you are introducing all kinds of assumptions and, that you have picked up somewhere along the line in your, in your, just the way you grew up and the language you used and the stories you read and the popular psychology you heard. You're going to have to sort out what you're bringing into your views of uh, your practice in Dhamma. Because you may, you may, uh, Discover that you have you assume that uh, some of these practices are identical when they're not. They have different visions and views. Now, this is my second talk on this uh, Western psychology versus Buddhist psychology.
and I have hardly scraped the surface of it. But I've sort of outlined a few things about the differences and the influences on each one. And so in, in summary, when I would say that Buddhism is a, a practical psychology, which can demonstrate with the individuals who practice it, exceptional results, not just normative results, not just recovery from sort of debilitating mental illnesses or something, but extraordinary results. Now, you're going to even get some skepticism from Western psychology and psychiatry about the claims of supernormal or much higher than average results from uh, Buddhist practice. But those are usually just naive and some modern psychologists and even neuroscientists have been studying this without a prejudice and, and having seen some remarkable differences in the results. The emotional capacities, now it's hard to measure emotional capacities unless you just ask the person, how do you feel? But that's not, you're not allowed in science to just ask a person how you feel. It's an anecdotal <laughs> report. You have to measure it with a machine. <laughs> but we are, we have a huge long history and we can read about the lives, the consistency of the lives. People living in these monastic communities are observed over periods of 60 and 70 years. Their behavior, their speech, their behavior, every aspect of their life is under observation by other members of the community. And so we can learn all about them. There's nothing hidden. And we can report how they lived and what they did and so forth and how they spoke. And we can get external reports of this and they're absolutely remarkable. So this is a different approach to things and there is nothing equivalent to it in Western psychology at any point in history. Some other time I'll perhaps talk more about what we would call Greek philosophy and psychology in equivalent time in history, the 4th or 5th century BC, and how they may have some closer ideas to the Buddhist ideas than, than modern psychology has, and how modern psychology could actually learn from their, modern Western psychology could actually learn from more education about the Greek philosophers and what they thought about the human mind. But for today, I will, I will leave it.